old car. I got a 96 Ford uh, Escort, and uh, it's got a bunch of electrical problems. So as I'm driving randomly, the seatbelt warning will come on, even though I'm, I'm wearing my seatbelt, okay? But I start going off. So as I was driving into town, I turned my car off, just kept moving, dropped it in second gear, and compression started. And I thought, oh, isn't this beautiful? I just I, I love starting a car, compression starting. That's fun. Uh, it's good to be out here. It's fun coasting my way into town. Um, it's a 96. It, it barely works, all right? Um, so just to give you some about my background, uh, my wife and I are ahead to Japan as soon as they open the border, which we just found out maybe in beginning of March they'll open up, so we're hoping to get there soon. Um, I was a professor at Corbin University for a couple years and been around the Midwest. Um, but today I want to talk to you guys about Jesus. And I've titled this sermon, Just and Unjust Judges, because we're going to see in this passage this is a very legal passage. There's a trial going on. There's people sitting in authority. And I think in our day and age, we're aware of the problems of authority, aren't we? Like, <laughs> anytime we look at politicians, or maybe it's our boss, there's always people that have authority. And sometimes you're like, why does this person have authority? Actually, some of the oldest documents in the world about politics raise this very question. In fact, it's about 500 B.C., one of the oldest Greek texts about political power says, who watches the watchers? Think about that for a second. We give people political power, but who's watching them? Who's making sure they're doing the right thing? As long as there have been people gathered together in societies, we got a problem that certain men have power, and we're always wondering... How do we keep those people in check? So this passage, I think in that way it's very relevant. We're always talking about government overreach or government did this the way I didn't want, right? Or uh, we're always struggling with how to have authority that works right. So I want to see in this passage, we see Jesus as a model of a different type of leader. And I want to see how that can be good news for us today. Let me go and pray real quick for us. Lord, would you open this passage up? Would you open up our hearts so we can feel the gentle humility of Jesus, but also open our eyes so we can see the majesty of his authority and power, the one who lays down his complete control to stand trial. There's nobody like Jesus. God, would you let us today realize that we have to make a decision about this man? We have to make a decision about this one. God, would you guide us to what Scripture says is true about Jesus? He's the Lord. He's the one, the anointed, the Messiah, the all-controlling God. That's you. God, would you help us see that in this passage today? Amen. So we start off with... In the beginning of this passage, uh, if you guys have been following along the last couple weeks, Jesus had just been before the Sanhedrin, the the high priest, the the council of Jewish elders, and they've decided that this guy's got to go. But because Judea, because Israel is a Roman, um, you know, it's a Roman territory, they're not allowed to kill anybody. This is one of the things that Rome does. It's okay if you, you know, you can scourge people, you can beat them up, you can torture them, but you can't kill anybody without Roman authority. If you guys have taken a political science course before, you'll probably know that one of the definitions of a government is an organization that monopolizes violence. That's real fancy. What it means is 
no one else is allowed to shoot people, right? That's why the police are the police are allowed to do it, but if you just go out and shoot people, you end up in jail. There's only certain appropriate authorities to use violence. So this is what's happening here. The Jews want to kill Jesus, but they can't do it because Rome has the keys for this sort of thing. So they take him to Pontius Pilate. Now, who was Pilate? We don't know a ton about him. Um, actually, it's kind of funny. Uh, I don't know if you guys know anything about a. a, a academic history, that's my field, a lot of people didn't even know if Pilate was real. They're like, I don't know if we can trust the Gospels. And then like in 1965, they found a big stone um, in in what's a town called Tiberias on the the Sea of Galilee. And it's a a big old foundation stone that literally says, this is the foundation of Pilate's seat. So you're like, oh, okay, I guess that's that's this part of his house. So this is Pilate. Uh, The the name Pilatus, it may actually mean he's a javelin thrower. So some people think that actually maybe Pilate was a guy of modest means who rose up to power because of his skills as a soldier. After all, in Rome, even if you're a slave, if you fight long enough, you can be given your freedom. So it's possible Pilate was a relatively regular dude who rose up by his skill and prowess. We don't know for sure, but it's possible. So they bring up him to Pilate, and they begin to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, if you've been watching the last couple chapters, this isn't quite true. Now, Jesus, at some places, makes it clear that he's got special authority unlike anybody else. But what did he actually say about tribute to Caesar? Do you guys remember that passage? He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's give to God what is God's. Now, the fun thing about the answer is like, what does that mean? And we, I, I can't, and we, we talked about that, trying to unpack what Jesus is saying. But the Sanhedrin are trying to kill Jesus. So this time to delve into the niceties and theological details. No, no. They're like, well, uh, he didn't give a nice, firm enough answer. So let's get rid of this guy. That's what they want. And saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Christ, anointed one, Messiah. These are all the same kind of idea here. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Now, it's interesting that he says this because, of course, all the Jews in this day knew that a Messiah was coming. It was prophesied all throughout the Old Testament. There's an anointed one coming, the son of the blessed, someone with unusual and amazing divine authority. Now, we look back and know Jesus is God. But the Jews in the first century, they weren't always entirely sure what this meant. Is is he empowered by God in a special way? They didn't understand all the details of this. Some had an idea, but plenty didn't. And so Pilate asks a good outsider question. He doesn't know about Messiah. As a Roman, does he even care about these things? He's like, look, all I care about is Caesar's authority, right? He doesn't care about people debating Jewish religious questions. Guys, we live in a, a Christian the world's so largely been impacted by Christianity. We assume this is normal. If you're a Roman governor, do you care what a couple hundred thousand people in the, some far-flung part of the empire think about religion? You're not interested. So Pilate doesn't ask about Messiahdom, about Jesus' anointed status. He's like, okay, are you a king? His question is purely political. He doesn't care if Jesus says he's God. I mean, the reality is, if you guys know anything about the Caesars, they believe they were gods. So ironically, if Jesus had just said, yeah, I'm God, then Pilate would be like, okay, well, are you going to pick up any swords? If not, I don't care. You can say whoever, you can be whatever you want. You just can't be a king. You get me? The politics for Pilate is the problem. If Jesus is a king, he's a threat to the standing political order. 
Now, what's interesting, we'll see this more especially next week as we get further. Pilate, Pilate has two trials of Jesus. He asks him questions, then he goes to Herod, and Jesus comes back to Pilate, he asks some more. Pilate's going to get theological. He's going to start asking questions about what's right, who is this man, but right now he's just asking simply, do you think you're a king? Do I need to worry about your vision of yourself politically? And Jesus gives maybe one of the most cryptic answers. This is verse 3 in scriptures. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, you have said so. In the Greek, it's literally, you say. I can't translate it more aggressively than that. You say. Weird. Now, this is the case in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And often the synoptics track really close. John's kind of... um, John's written a lot later, right? It's John looking back on the stories. But all four of them have this exact same construction. You say. Pronoun, verb. That's it. What on earth does this mean? Because some people have said, again, if you guys read really skeptical scholarship, they'll say, well, Jesus didn't claim to be God. Now, that's garbage if you actually read the New Testament closely. But Jesus is comfortable saying he's God, so why doesn't he say it here? Why doesn't he say he's a king? He says, you say. What does he mean? Now, I think the way to, there's a couple ways we could unpack this. Is, does Jesus mean this sarcastically? You're like, that's what you say. Is that, I don't think that fits with the character of our Lord, but, but is that what he's saying here? Or is this kind of meant as a negative, like, that's what you say. Like, you know, that's not true. That'd be a, a way to say no while using the word yes. Like, that's what you say, Okay. Actually, I think what Jesus is is trying to say is he's trying to reframe Pilate's problem. Because Pilate is a man of this world who knows how worldly power and authority works, right? Worldly power and authority in the first century is, you screw around with me, I bring the Roman soldiers in and they execute you. That's how power works. Power works because you snap your fingers and people get axed. That's power. In that sense... Is Jesus walking around Galilee, is he a king in that sense? Now, we know he's coming back with that authority. But right now, is Jesus executing judgment? Not quite like that. So in that sense, the way Pilate visualizes power, no. But let me ask it a different way. Is Jesus apolitical? Is Jesus not political? Now, this, guys, this is tough for us because we're, we're in church have very different political opinions. So I'm asking, does Jesus impact what we think about politically? I'm not going to be saying anything about who to vote for or what stance you should take, okay? So, so calm down, everyone breathe. <sighs> okay. What I'm saying is, if Jesus isn't a king the way Pilate thinks he is, does that mean that Jesus has no interest in how governments and people and societies operate? False, right? All through the scriptures, he's been telling people, in the kingdom, things will be like this. You say and do these things, my kingdom's like this. So Jesus has, get the paradox, a fundamentally political vision of what his kingdom's like. In Jesus' kingdom, you following me here? In Jesus' kingdom, the poor are fed. In Jesus' kingdom, the Wicked are punished. In Jesus' kingdom, the wrong things are set right. But is Jesus the king the way Pilate is the governor? No. It's a different order here. So Jesus gives this very cryptic, you say. Pilate needs to think a little more closely about what he means by kingship. (laughs) What I love about Jesus is how how is Jesus king of your and my life? 
Pilate's governor because he executes people in his way. Jesus is our king because he dies for us. So do you see the, the paradox of this? Pilate knows power that strikes. Jesus knows power that builds and lifts and, re, and rebuilds us into something new. That's the power of Jesus. That's the power of God. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Pilate's like, well, I mean, if he doesn't say he's a king, if he doesn't have any swords on him, like, what do you want me to do with him? I don't care about your religious debates. It's not interesting to me. But they were urgent, saying he stirs up the people. I want to get back to this question. Is Jesus political? Does he stir up the people of Judea? Oh, yeah, he does. So in this sense, is Jesus political? Yeah, because he's driving the Jewish religious elites crazy all the time. In that sense, he's political. He stirs up the people, true, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. So the Jewish elites are saying, look, the point is, everyone's talking about him, everyone's watching him, everyone's listening to him. You can't trust a guy with that level of authority. So again, is Jesus political the way Pilate is? No. But does Jesus have authority because everyone's hanging on his word? Absolutely. It says in Scripture that when Jesus teaches, he taught with authority like no one ever had before. So people want to know what he's got to say. And the Jewish elites are like, that's why he's a problem. He's teaching. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. Now, um, this requires a little bit of historical backstory here. So this is not Herod who tries to kill Jesus at the beginning of the Gospels. This is his son. The, the first Herod's Herod the Great who tried to kill the baby Jesus. This is his son, Herod Antipas. Now, the background, I'll show my historian card here. The background here on Herod Antipas is that... Um, Herod generally, like his father, tried to not make Jewish people mad religiously. He's a, he's a complete tool of the Roman state, right? He makes Jewish people obey the political order, but he generally let Jewish people do what they want to religiously, with two, uh, yeah, it's a one real exception. Um, one time, Herod, I got to keep this PG here, uh, one time Herod headed over to uh, see one of his brothers, uh, Herod II, see one of his brother's kingdoms, and he bumped into his half-sister and fell madly in lust, I think I would say, with her, and took her back with him. His half-sister took her back to his kingdom in Judea and married her, divorcing his wife. So this is the backstory of what Herod's up to. Herod's not a particularly nice guy, not a particularly moral guy, and this is why John the Baptist makes Herod so mad. You guys, again, if you're familiar with the Gospels, Herod really doesn't like John. It's because John says, hey, Leviticus tells us twice you don't marry your half-sister. This man's breaking the law. He claims to be a king, but he doesn't even abide by the rules of how, uh, how Jewish, uh, faithful Jewish believers should act. He's not a real authority. You following me? John says, the Baptist says, if you look at this man, his conduct tells you he's not the rightful king. And that's why you guys may know the story. One day, um, one of the daughters of, of Herodias will, will dance, and Herod will say, I'll give, Herod Antipas will say, I'll give you whatever you want. She'll say, I want the head of that man on a plate. Because he is always talking, talking, talking about how Herod's not the real authority, not the real king, not the, the godly king like David that we need. And so that's the background. That's what's going on here. Now, Herod, um, uh, Herod and, and Pilate had a complicated relationship. If we skip down to verse 12, it says they're enmity previously. Why? 
Well, it's because, remember, Herod generally tried to not make Jews angry religiously. Pilate doesn't care about that. So when Pilate built uh, his imperial city, it was called Tiberias, it's right on the Sea of Galilee, he set up in his, in, uh, in his palace, and required Herod to put these up too, legionary symbols of Rome, which honored Tiberius as a god. And Herod was like, please don't do this. All the Jews will rebel, and then Rome's going to come in and kill us. So don't do that. Pilate says, I don't care. I'm going to make the Caesar happy. I'm going to make the emperor proud. I'm putting him up. Well, Herod went over his head and wrote a little letter to Pilate and says, uh, unless you want a rebellion, you got to take those emblems down. And Pilate had to take him down when the emperor wrote him a nasty note. So this is why Herod, isn't this how bureaucracies work, you guys? Herod and Pilate now hate each other because Pilate, in the face of all of Judea, had to pull down his favorite little decorations that were going to be put all around Jerusalem. And so these guys hate each other, even though they both have to play nice, because they work for Rome together. Now, what we're going to see in the rest of this passage is that Herod and Pilate are going to become friends they're going to find that judging Jesus makes them teammates and partners. I, I want to investigate how they react to Jesus because they have very different interactions with him. Um, let's get that in a second. Now, when, when Pilate sends Jesus to Herod, notice what's already happened. He's already said, verse 4, I find no guilt in this man. Pilate's already made a judgment. The trial's over. So when he sends Jesus to Herod, he's actually saying, I want someone to, to check my work. You guys remember that? Like in math class, you have to do it twice. He's, he's having Herod check his work. Is, in fact, Jesus innocent? So we have Pilate, the Roman political elite, make a call. Now he's going to go to the Jewish political elite to make a call. When Herod saw Jesus, verse 8, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he'd heard about him and is hoping to see some sign done by him. Now, remember how Herod had killed John the Baptist? All the Gospels report, I, don't, I, had, I had noticed this, in, I think I noticed this in Luke, but every single Gospel says that Herod thought that Jesus might be John the Baptist, like reincarnated or resurrected. Now, first off, that's creepy. But two, that's point one, it's creepy. Two is, Herod is like, I thought I dealt with this guy, but everyone's talking about him? Is John back? So I think in Herod, I think there's excitement. I think there's maybe a little fear. He hasn't really dealt with anyone like this before. He's glad to see Jesus brought in. So he brings Jesus in. He wants to see some sign. And Jesus doesn't give him one. In fact, it says, Herod questioned him at some length, verse 9, but Jesus made no answer. So, what I want you to notice here is Jesus engages with Pilate. In fact, as we come back to the rest of chapter 23 next week, Jesus and Pilate get into a whole conversation about the nature of authority, what it means to be uh, righteous, what guilt is. Like, he, they actually kind of mix things up a little bit. He has nothing to say to Herod. So one of the things I want to ask today is, between these two judges, why does Jesus engage with Pilate and not engage with Herod? I think part of it is that, like, it's weird because I don't think Pilate's a good guy. He's not. But Pilate actually wants to get to the bottom of this. He's a truth seeker in this moment. He wants to figure out if Jesus is actually, he wants to find out what the facts of the case are. And so Jesus will answer him. Maybe not a lot, you say, but he'll engage with him. When he shows up in Herod's house, Herod is like, oh, man, is this really John? Hey, do something. I want to see something cool. Come on! And Jesus has nothing to say. He doesn't do a thing. 
So my question is this. If you're not a believer, if you're not sure what you think about Jesus, we got two models in this passage. Do you want to ask Jesus questions? Do you want to investigate him? Do you want to hold him up to trial and say, what is this guy like? Or do you want him to do something for you? Now, I'm going to argue for you guys that I think all of us are like Pilate. And that's sinful, but that's a route to meet Jesus. But if we're Herod, there is no hope for us. If you look at Jesus and say, if you give me what I want, I don't know, you'll be deputy. (laughs) If you give me the things I want, I'll let you be part of my life. Jesus has nothing for you. If you want to know who this one is, if you want to ask him some hard questions, he'll answer you. Okay, So, So follow with me here. We get two different models. Now, Verse 10, the chief priests and the scribes of Herod stood by vehemently accusing him, or sorry, the uh, chief priests and scribes, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. Now we actually know from Josephus, the Jewish historian, that um, Herod was so rich, he would have silver and gold thread threaded into his clothing. In fact, Josephus writes that one time he appears at this festival and he puts his robe on and it's so shiny that like the, the sun glints off it and people start screaming, it's a god! They put one of these on Jesus. I want you do you hear the symbolism here? Jesus is wearing this beautiful resplendent robe that when people see it, they think that's something divine. Hint, hint. Okay, anyways, one of the things that's so fun about the scriptures is people do things stupidly that are right. Herod doesn't think Jesus is God, but he puts the right mantle on his shoulders. You track with me? He's putting the appropriate clothing on this Jesus, this one he mocks. Verse 12, I'm going to go back and recapitulate some of this. Verse 12, and Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they'd been in enmity with each other. So Herod lets Jesus go. He's not going to kill him. You've got two men, the political authority, the Roman political authority, the Jewish political authority, and they both have decided he's not worthy of death. This isn't, this isn't a big deal. Whatever. Pilate says, well, he doesn't claim he's a king, so I don't care. And Herod says, he just can't do any of the magical things I thought he was going to do for me, so I don't care. So Jesus is going to get off scot-free, right? Now, Deuteronomy actually tells us, I think it's Deuteronomy 17, it says any person you're going to try to death must have two witnesses confirm it. He just had two witnesses say, innocent. He didn't do anything. Guilt is not on this man. How is Jesus going to end up dead? How are we going to get there? We're going to see in a little bit next week especially. But I just want to leave that with you for a second. So what do we know about Pilate after this? Pilate's going to come back. You guys may recall, if you've read um, scriptures before, that Pilate's wife actually has a dream. Tells us in John. She goes to Pilate and says, I couldn't sleep all last night because I had horrible dreams about this man you're trying. Don't have anything to do with this trial. Like, let him go. Stop. Now, we don't actually know the rest of Pilate's back, the rest of his kind of story going forward. Um, Within two or three years of this event, he's going to leave imperial service and completely disappear from the historical record. But there are stories that by, by 135, 140, Justin Martyr, one of the very first Christian authors we have that's not in this book, he actually writes that Pilate and his wife Claudia became Christians. Now, that's not in Scripture, so don't mishear me. You don't have to believe that to be a Christian. But he says it, Tertullian has the same story. There's several early church fathers that all say Pilate became a Christian after this. Now, 
That doesn't have to be true. That's just what a couple guys wrote. We don't have it in Scripture. But here's my encouragement for us. I want to believe that Pilate could be a Christian because I'm like him. Herod says, Jesus, what are you going to do for me? I'm demanding something from you. But Pilate, why is Jesus going to end up dead? We know from the, the, the chapters that are going to come. Pilate's going to end up handing Jesus over to death because he's afraid of the crowd. Herod demands something of Jesus, and Pilate's afraid of what Jesus will demand from him. You follow the difference? Pilate knows if this man is innocent but speaks with the power and authority he's got, this man is something special, and he's going to require something of me that will cost a lot. Like maybe a mob appears and kills me, or maybe the Jewish elite write to Rome and have the Emperor Tiberius come and remove me from authority. So Pilate is aware if Jesus is who Jesus says he is and who the crowd says he is, if he's actually not guilty, but he's the innocent king, this means that Pilate's got to change right now. He's not the judge. Christ is the judge. So this is the reason why I'm telling you guys, I want to believe that Pilate could become a Christian because I'm like Pilate. When I meet Jesus, when you guys meet Jesus every day, not just once in your life when you become a Christian, but all the time, there are parts of your life that you're like, I don't really want to give this over to Jesus. Uh, he might demand this of me. And sometimes I betray and sell Jesus out because I don't trust him. Do you see how this is like Pilate? Pilate's the betrayer. He says, well, I mean, if I actually let this guy go, my life might be at risk. My job might be at risk. I'm not going to risk it for this one. That's what I do every day. That's what it means to be a sinner is to say, uh, Jesus sounds good, but I need to be in charge. I need to have authority. I need to be the judge. So I'm encouraging you guys. If you are struggling with something in your life and you don't think you can trust Jesus, this is the passage you need to be looking at. Ask Jesus some questions about who he is. If Jesus is who he said he is, you can trust him. And if you haven't been trusting him, here's the good news, there's still time for you. If you weren't trusting him in that part of your life, or there's this thing you're saying, I have to have this or I won't be happy, you can still give it to him and he'll invite you in. Jesus is in the business of welcoming broken people to his mercy. But if you look at Jesus and say, if I don't get that job, if my son doesn't recover from this condition, if that gal doesn't want to marry me, if you put ifs, if you put conditionals on why you'll follow Jesus, he doesn't have anything for you. So my warning, my caution is, get your priorities straight. Are you demanding things of Jesus, or are you bit by bit giving over to his demands? Now, I can encourage you to say, everything I've ever lost for Jesus, I have later looked back and seen that as a grace. There's not one good thing God will take from you without reimbursing you more of his spirit. I promise you that's true. But try it out if you're not sure. Jesus will always pay you back for the things you lose. And this is why I want to believe that we'll see Pilate in heaven. I don't know, but I like that story because that's my story. I keep saying, oh, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. And every time I lose my hold of something, I realize, oh, that was so good. Jesus is too good to let me have that thing. Now, I want to close going one, one or two more places. 
This is a trial. These are judges. The title is just and unjust judges. These men are judging Jesus. And there's a real irony, right? Jesus is the judge. He's the Lord. He's the king. He's God. And he's standing before a human tribunal, before these men who are they're political agents of a gross and brutal empire. And they're acting as if they're the judges of the righteous one. Like, what an irony. Let's go to Psalm 2 really quick. I don't think I, I, don't think I, I gave it to our, our, our slide guy. I'm sorry. Let's go read real quick. This is trial language. Listen, Psalm 2, I think I'll put on the first two verses. Psalm 2, 1, 2. If you guys have ever listened to Handel's Messiah, that famous uh, orchestral piece, this is from there. Uh, this is from there. <laughs> it's drawing from this, rather. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, which means Messiah. So what are the rulers of the earth doing? They're gathering together to take counsel. Why do you take counsel? To make a decision. This Psalm 2 is about the trial, in some, in some way, metaphorically, it's about the trial of Jesus. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is Jesus, his second coming in authority and power. Listen to verse 10. This is a warning to Herod and Pilate. It's a warning to you and me. Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, I wish it said would-be kings. Is there any king except Jesus? Every other king's a pretender, you guys, including you and me. We're all pretenders. So I wish it said, therefore, oh, would-be, oh, think you're kings, oh, purported kings. You with me? Now, therefore, kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. I love this verse. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The message to Pilate and Herod is, you can make a judgment, but the best move is to kiss. Not a Judas betrayer's kiss, but a kiss of, this is the one I want. This is the one I need. So the message for us today, this morning is, Jesus is standing before you. Are you going to make a judgment on him? Or are you going to go up to kiss him because you know who he is? Let me give you one more story. We'll close here. This is Exodus 17. And, and just, just so you know, I'm not, I'm not making this up. If you look at Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians 10.4, uh, he says that Jesus is the rock. Okay, Who here knows the story about the water and the rock in Exodus? This is Exodus 17. I heard a couple, mm-hmm, a couple people know where we're going with this. An amazing verse. I saw this a couple years ago. I, I, I can't let it go. It's so great. Exodus 17, let's go verse 2. So they're in the desert, people of Israel. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. They're thirsty. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test? What's the word test? It means trial. Why are you trying God? Why are you examining him? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, (laughs) they say this like eight times, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us? Verse 4. So Moses, have you guys ever had that thing that you lose where you're like, God, are you trying to kill me? 
I, I think about when I lost a job at Corbin. Like, that was the thing I'd worked for for 15 years. I lost it. I was like, God, why are you taking this from me? And now I've got a vision for why. It hurt. So, Jesus, so Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go, listen, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. You shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Do you know what I stand before means? That's the way Jewish writers talk about trial language. You stand before a judge. You see what God is saying? He's saying, I'm going to stand before your judgment. You're going to try me, and you're going to find out if you strike me, water's going to save your life in the desert. Do you see the beauty of Jesus here? He, the mighty God, is saying, test me. I dare you. Try out who I am and see if you aren't filled with life abundant. That's the beauty of this passage. That's what's amazing is Jesus, the one who is the eternal judge, is standing gently, humbly before the magistrate. We could go other places. Jesus says in, in, uh, in Luke, he says that don't worry about what you're going to say when people try you. When people are judging you, I will give you the words to answer, words that no man will be able to withstand or contradict. He says, I think it's uh, Luke 13. Jesus stood silent at his trial so you can open your mouth in the trial and speak a word of Jesus. You get the beauty of this inversion here? Jesus, I feel like I talked about this a couple weeks ago, he goes low so we can go high. Jesus was quiet so you can open your mouth with praise and speak of the beauty of Jesus. Jesus, the mighty God, stood on trial so we'd have to see him and judge and find him sweet. Okay? One or two closing thoughts. How do you test yourself? How do you make sure you have a heart that can receive, that can ask questions of Jesus instead of a heart that demands from him? Paul gives us this. This is 1 Corinthians 10. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. So the beauty of Exodus and the beauty of what Paul sees in the Old Testament is the beauty of Jesus on trial. The one that is stricken gives life. Do you guys know where Mount Horeb is? It's Mount Sinai. It's a different name for the place you meet God. How do you meet God? We look back, I look back, you look back on your sins, the things you struck Christ with, pull the rod back and look and see the water of life rushing out to you and me. That's what it means to believe. That's what it means to, let's, let's do one better than Pilate. And instead of saying, what about this, what about this? Let's say, God, I don't know if I can meet your demands, but I trust that you're going to give me what I need. We're going to have communion now together. Um, I guess band can go and come on up. When we take communion, communion is an expression of two things. Thanks. 
Communion is an expression of our faith. If you believe in Jesus, this meal is for you. But I want to give you the other side of it. You know what communion also is? It's also an expression of God's promised love to us. The promise is he's the rock. He's the water poured out for us. If that wasn't the case, Paul says, if Jesus isn't raised, if he's not ruling, if he's not king, we're in trouble. We're, we're meant to be pitied. It's a waste of our time. But guys, Jesus stood trial, innocent. Yet he was broken for us. He now sits on high, the ultimate judge, and you can trust this judge. He's not Pilate. He's not Herod. He's a good judge. He's a good king. Go ahead and come on up to the band place. Go ahead and take it.